On Behind the Idea this week, it's time for one more Kinder Morgan discussion. This week, it's Seeking Alpha author Dividend Streamer who joins us. An author who has followed KMI closely for years, even if he's only written about the stock three times. We dig into what makes Kinder Morgan different, including a surprising area of strength, the way they write their contracts. That talks about the strength of their contracts. You're not going to see their actual contracts. That's kind of like Coca-Cola telling you their formula. These aren't publicly available. You see it around the edges. We also revisit the dividend cut of a few years ago with a look at the silver lining that has led to a stronger company today. It was a difficult time for shareholders. Obviously, no shareholder likes a a dividend cut. KMI wasn't the only one to cut its dividend. Others did too. But now we have a situation where, like just about every other company in the S&P 500, when they fund growth, they have to use some internally generated cash. We first discussed Kinder Morgan a month ago because we thought there was too much reliance in seeking alpha commentary on the company's given metrics and story without enough critical analysis. In this, our second discussion with a bull on the stock, we're finding that there is plenty of thoughtful study of the company as well. Looking to see where that leads? Listen in on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. We're doing what is probably our last podcast for a while on Kinder Morgan, the pipeline company, ticker symbol KMI. We spoke with Kirk Spano last week, and he made the case that our first podcast on this stock was too backwards looking. Made an interesting case, but one of the things I felt was unsettled was the whole question about distributal cash flow, DCF versus free cash flow, FCF, and there were other topics to get into. This time, I'm joined by another Seeking Alpha author, Dividend Streamer. Dividend Streamer has written three articles on Seeking Alpha, all about Kinder Morgan, but has also been commenting on the stock since at least 2012. So he's been following it for quite some time. He just posted a really interesting article as sort of a response to our original podcast about this precise question of what's the right metric to look at for midstream companies like Kinder Morgan. So I think he's just the person to have on the podcast. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to understand what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. I have no positions in any stocks we plan to discuss, while Dividend Streamer is along KMI. With that said, Dividend Streamer, welcome to Behind the Idea. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in sort of we we had some exchanges sort of leading up to this. And so where I want to start is just one of the things we talked about in our first podcast, and then we kind of went into with Kirk too, and I'll follow up on his view in a second. The company calls itself a toll road company. We've seen revenue has gone down in rougher periods in that 2015 to 16 stretch. So it doesn't seem like they get the whole predictability that they talk about. Certainly not the swings that a EMP company would face, but still, there was definitely some exposure. Why does it make sense or not make sense to think of KMI and other midstream companies in that sort of toll toll road way? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I think it's a, a topic that has a lot of different kind of nuances. I think KMI uses that in their investor presentations because they want to appear uh, to be a robust company. And when you think of a toll road, you think of cars kind of regularly going, you know, through a toll and paying money. And, you know, it's a nice steady business. There are sort of barriers to entry because presumably there aren't many other roads that will do the same thing. As the midstream business has kind of changed over the years, they've had different models and some of them kind of fit with the idea of a toll road and some of them don't. Early on, many midstreams used to have contracts that were a percent of proceeds. So when a shipper sent, you know, energy through their pipeline, KMI got a slice of that based on how much the product was worth. Obviously, that doesn't work real well when energy prices are falling, 
So I think KMI came up with this idea of a toll road to show that we're not charging based on the product that's on our highway. We're charging you a fee uh, to travel on the highway, to have a lane on our highway. That's about where that analogy, I think, should have stopped. Because when you look at fee-based, which is what most of the midstream sector has moved to in, in one form or other, there are really two types of fee-based uh, contracts. One of them is volume sensitive, and that's the one that is the toll road. And so if volumes decline, your business is going to decline. Your you know, cash flow and earnings or revenues are going to decline. On the other hand, Kinder Morgan uses a lot of take or pay contracts. And in those contracts, you're really not a toll road. You're actually better than that. You're almost like a landlord who has leased out office space. And whether that tenant fills the office space or not, you're going to get paid. It's a more stable, you know, source of revenue and earnings. It's not as exciting. So, you, you know, you don't want KMI coming out and saying, oh, we're a great pipeline landlord. But essentially, a lot of, biz of their business fits into that category. And what that means is that, you know, whether times are good or times are bad, you know, they're going to keep collecting their money. Now, having said that, there are risks to this. You know, one of the things people cite when they, when they talk about these contracts and, and the uh, customers is that there have been cases where customers have become so weak financially that uh, a pipeline company has uh, renegotiated a contract to make it more favorable for the customer. So perhaps they could even stay in business. And that's the risk that people talk about. That's the big you know, question mark people have. One big example of that happening was Williams. They renegotiated some of their gathering and processing contracts with with Chesapeake. And, you know, it's like all negotiations, there were some good things that came to Williams and that the length of the contracts were extended, but they basically weren't nearly as favorable overall. That has not happened to KMI, uh, to my knowledge. They've had a couple you know, smaller bankruptcies, interestingly enough, one was a coal company, uh, and that was on their terminal side. But, you know, it's much more complicated than just saying, yeah, we're a toll road. It's, it involves lots of different facets. So how does, how much does what KMI is doing there in terms of how they, you know, you, you said more, think about it more like a landlord and how much, what distinguishes KMI? And maybe we can just use this more generally, what distinguishes them from other midstream companies? What are the advantages that KMI has or doesn't have? And, you know, one of the things, and we talked about this before the podcast, one of the things some people said was that we were unfair in picking on KMI. What, what makes it, if anything, different or in a positive or negative way as compared to the sector around it? Yeah, uh, that's a... That's a great question and one that should always be asked when someone invests. There are two things that I see, and, and they're in totally different categories. One is simply their size. And it's not just a matter of efficiency like you might think of as, a let's say, a, a big manufacturer that has you know more efficiencies. It's really it's the network effect. So when someone wants to ship from you know their natural gas fields to the end point, let's say it's a power plant, KMI can say to them, yeah, we can handle the whole thing. We can take it from point A to your end point and you're done. Smaller entities can say, we'll take it from point A to point B. And then, you know, by the way, there's this other company there that can handle the rest of it for you. So by having a huge kind of, I think of it as a spider web, you know, network that's bigger than others, they have a network effect that makes it easier for them to 
provide services to their customers that are, you know, relatively inexpensive because they don't have to deal with two entities and uh, that are more simple for the customer. So that's one aspect of it. But another aspect of it that's a little nuanced and it's not something that's easy to explain or to buy into, but you see it around the edges. It's, it's still critical. And that has to do with the strength of their agreements. So I mentioned Williams and how they renegotiated with their customer Chesapeake and, you know, didn't turn out that great for Williams. Uh, Richard Kinder, the chairman of, of C of uh, Kinder Morgan and, and the founder, his training was as a, as an attorney, as a lawyer, he went to law school. And so when you look at some of the things KMI has done, you realize that it really matters how you structure your contracts. And I'll give you two examples of that. Uh, just recently, the California utility PG&E, you know, they had all these wildfires and uh, lots of lawsuits and loss of life. They had to declare bankruptcy. Well, Kinder Morgan supplies them. And, and the value of that contract is $93 million. So, you know, they were asked during their most recent conference call, you know, how does this fit into, you know, your business? And uh, Steve Keen, the CEO, his, his response was, and I'll just read a, a couple sentences. It's our understanding, at least, that in PG&E's prior bankruptcy proceeding, they did not reject firm transport contracts. So that's not proof of what they'll do this time, but we think there are reasons for optimism on these contracts. So he's basically saying last time we ran into this, it worked in our favor, and we have reason to believe it's going to work in our favor this time. You know, that gives you a sense that even when a company is in bankruptcy, uh, especially when it's a company that needs to keep operating like a utility, KMI is in pretty good good shape. They still need that natural gas. And that, that talks about the strength of their contracts. You're not going to see their actual contracts. That's kind of like Coca-Cola telling you their formula. They're, these aren't publicly available. You see it around the edges. And KMI does not advertise the strength of their contracts because they don't want their customers to look like they're getting <laughs> railroaded. But KMI's contracts are extremely favorable to KMI. The second example, which has been, you know, one of the biggest pieces of news for KMI over the last year is the sale of their Trans Mountain Pipeline in Canada to the government of Canada. And I think people were surprised at how quickly that happened and how much money they received for it. When you look at the background of that, there's an article, and I'll send it to you. Maybe you can post a link. It's a Reuters article. And they basically talked about how much leverage KMI had in their negotiations because of the strength of their contracts. Even if the pipeline didn't get built, a lot of KMI's costs were covered. Things like the price of steel were not capped in the contract. So as the price of steel went up, it did not impact. KMI's uh, bottom line. Some of the costs of dealing with difficult situations uh, like local communities, land acquisitions, tunneling through uh, Burnaby uh, Mountain, all these things were not risks that KMI was taking. So I'm going to go back to the landlord thing and, and um, use kind of an analogy of the triple net lease where a lot of the risks that KMI seems to take are not really taken on by KMI. They're taken on by the customer. As a last point in this, when people think about risks with, with the midstream sector, they always go to the price of commodities. Uh, in your initial podcast, you mentioned a 40% correlation between the price of KMI stock and the price of oil, which interestingly enough is not the core business, right? Natural gas is. Right. But nevertheless, when a correlation is that strong, people wonder why. I think the market gets it wrong. 
70%, almost 70% of their business is actually the end users. They refer to it as demand pull, the end users of the energy. And so, you know, a utility is not going to stop producing electricity. They're not going to lose their customers because the price of natural gas uh, went down. In fact, most of KMI's customers are happy when the price of commodities goes down because it's easier for them to operate. And the economics of building new power plants or petrochemical operations or LNG export, all of those become more favorable to generating more business when the price of the commodities goes down. So I think there are a lot of myths around this midstream business that when you look at it real hard, it's actually a very stable business. The risks are not, you know, exactly where people think, you know, they are. There certainly are risks, but I don't think that the price of commodities is as big as people make it out to be. So I want to follow up. That's really the contract point really is interesting to me. And I want to make sure I'm going to paraphrase how you described it and then just kind of check how this plays out. You're, you're essentially saying they are do a better job at writing contracts such that in times of duress, they don't, they don't get unfairly or not unfairly. That's not the right word, but they don't get unduly exposed to what could go wrong. And in a, case like with Canada, they're quick enough and capable enough and have, again, been foresightful enough to far-seeing enough to write compelling contracts so that they have leverage so that they can move faster, et cetera. And, and I guess I, I just want to make sure that I understood that correct. And then is that just an attribute to Richard Kinder's background and sort of the culture in the company and, you know, potentially what he hired for in the past, whatever else, or what, like, that's, that's such a interesting advantage to have to me. And so I'm just curious if there's anything else you attribute to, or if it's, or if it's just to repeat what you said earlier. Well, I think, you know, I don't know how much his background might have influenced success in, you know, these types of situations. Um, it is fair to say, though, that Kinder Morgan had a big chunk of these take-or-pay contracts and fee-based uh, contracts in general before it became quite as popular as it is now with other companies. So, you know, yeah, you give them credit. How much of a uh, competitive advantage is it? It is some, but obviously other companies can do the same thing. So, you know, it, it's not like they have a patent on it. But yeah, I think, I think your summary is a very good one. And I do think that they, they're more conservative in how they approach things, at least now. They, they weren't necessarily conservative in perhaps some of their purchases that had lower margins. That seems to be uh, cleaned up now for them and for other companies. There's more discipline in capital allocation. But let's flip to the other side, and that is, you know, what are some of the risks here? There are the usual risks, you know, interest rates, uh, execution risk on build-outs, you know, do you come in under budget or over budget, on time or late? But one of the risks that, you know, I don't think many people consider a risk, but I do, has to do with the level of growth. And it's not just Kinder Morgan, it's it's the whole industry. There's a lot of speculation about what the growth levels will be, let's say three or five years from now. Part of it has to do with how our energy environment is changing. And I don't have any particular insights into the, you know, where renewables will be. I, I know that in the previous podcast, you know, Kurt was a providing an opinion and seemed to be a researched opinion on uh, the role of fossil fuels and the decline even in the use of natural gas as renewables increase. That certainly has a big impact on, you know, a natural gas transport company. But Kinder Morgan provides in their 
presentations, kind of this, you know, growth outlook for the, the use of natural gas. Uh, and I believe the latest one was uh, citing uh, Wood, Wood McKenzie as a source. And this goes through the year 2030, so about 11 years. Wood McKenzie believes that half of the growth of, uh, you know, natural gas is actually going to be LNG exports. So, you know, you have a terminal somewhere, a plant, uh, you know, an LNG export terminal, and, you know, you'll load this up on, on ships and you send it to Europe or India or wherever, uh, you know, liquefied natural gas is, is needed. So half of it, half of the growth is there. That's a riskier form of growth than simply providing the United States utilities with natural gas for power generation, right? Because now you're dealing with, you know, other countries, exchange rates, you know, international treaties, tariffs, uh, as we see in the news now. There are a lot of moving parts in this. And so the risk that these LNG exports will happen is uh, is greater. Um, and then since half of the growth of this industry is supposedly LNG exports, there are some risks that that may or may not happen. Now, having said that, and, and this is where I give Kinder Morgan you know, kudos again for doing it the right way. Uh, they do have uh, at Elba Island an LNG export uh, facility just coming online around now. And the way they did that is the right way. They're not dealing with the nuances of exchange rates and international courts and things like that because they're contracted 100% of the capacity of that operation is contracted through Shell for 20 years. So, you know, that's a good way to do it because they're not taking the risks. If Shell can't sell that LNG at a good price, Kinder Morgan still gets paid. And Shell is a very big company. And, you know, it's not likely that they're going to have trouble paying Kinder Morgan if that LNG facility doesn't do as well as they hope. So that's kind of one of the risks that I see is that the growth is not there if LNG export somehow doesn't pan out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think that makes sense because you're talking, and this is where we're going to now get into the DCF stuff because I think that's also part of what we're raising is this, as you start to get into growth, as you start to get into different areas and different variables there that raises questions. And so just jumping right into that, I guess you, you just wrote an article about understanding Kinder Morgan's cash flows. You introduced a metric that you call DCF 2.0. So DCF is distributable cash flow, not a discounted cash flow model. We've been talking repeatedly about how we our argument has been that free cash flow is a more edifying way to understand a, a given company's cash flow situation. And I think your article disagrees with that. And I'd love to just hear if you could briefly summarize what DCF 2.0 is doing and then what sort of, because even before we get too far into this, this is all sort of, it's all how you use these metrics, right? And so I guess, how do you view these different metrics? What are they telling you? Why do you think how would you apply them? Like, why do you prefer the approach you take as compared to the other options? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, if you talk to a kind of a someone, I'll say within the industry of, of, of the midstream industry, they throw DCF, distributable cash flow around like it's any other metric, you know, almost as if it's a gap metric, even though it's not. And I think, you know, when you go back and you look at how this industry has changed, I think that that metric is poorly labeled. And, and here's why. It used to be that a midstream company, and most of them either were uh, MLPs 
or they had MLPs in their structures. They had, you know, two or three or even four different interrelated entities, uh, limited partners and general partners. And, you know, it's kind of this complicated mess of interrelated companies with, uh, you know, the, the limited partners paying uh, IDRs to the general partners. And it was very complicated. But the thing that they, these companies typically did is they didn't have to fund growth like any other business. You know, it was a, a bizarre way of funding growth. What they did is anytime they wanted to add a new pipeline, they, they issued new equity. And uh, the idea was, hey, we're adding new capabilities so we can issue equity and debt to fund that new thing, the, the new, new business, the new pipeline. And sometimes it literally was a new business. It was some kind of, you know, separate legal entity. And uh, when you read through the details, uh, you see that a company like KMI has a gazillion, you know, legal entities for each of these endeavors. But anyway, so when they funded these things, they didn't have to use any internal cash. What they did is they used about 50% new debt and 50% newly issued equity. You know, they issued more shares. And so because that model seemed to work, they said, you know, the money that we make from our existing business, we can distribute it to shareholders. And they called it distributable cash flow. And so you had companies essentially paying out 100% of the money they made. And when they funded growth, they just borrowed more money and they issued new shares. Obviously, when oil prices fell, it became, uh, and the stock prices of these entities fell along with it, it became difficult to issue new shares because the share prices were so low. If they issued shares, it was too dilutive. They would have to issue too many to get the, you know, the amount of money they wanted. And because they paid such big dividends on those shares, it would have been too costly on an ongoing basis. So KMI was one that had to cut its dividend uh, in order to start using internally generated cash to fund their new projects. It was a difficult time for shareholders. They, obviously, no shareholder likes a, a dividend cut. KMI wasn't the only one to cut its dividend. Others did too. Most at least slowed down the growth of their dividends. But now we have a situation where, like just about every other company in the S&P 500, when they fund growth, they have to use some internally uh, generated cash. I think that's a good thing. I think it creates discipline. I think that the companies become a little bit more, I'll say, mainstream in how their businesses operate. But here's the thing. When they do this, uh, when they use, let's say, half cash, internally generated cash and half debt to fund their operations, their free cash flow looks awful because they're, they're building these big, expensive pipelines. And fundamentally, it isn't exactly the same as, let's say, a trucking company that's expanding and adds another 50 tractor trailers. Because a pipeline, five years after it starts functioning, is most likely worth at least the investment made in it, possibly more. It doesn't, in the traditional sense, depreciate the way a tractor trailer might. And so when you start subtracting growth capex from operating cash flow to come up with free cash flow, these companies look bad, even though they really have these assets and they really are worth at least what they paid for them, as long as they're in business and you know operating and, and such. Just to jump in, when you say that it's possible that they're worth more, I just want to, that makes my ears perk up a little bit. What, what do you mean by that? How would a pipeline somehow appreciate in value over time in your view? Well, a pipeline, and let's just think of a given pipeline as its own business. Okay, so you build a new pipeline and you think of it, it has its own, you know, P&L, its own profit and loss. The value of the pipeline is not what you paid to build it. The value of the pipeline is based on the cash flows of that pipeline. So how useful is that pipeline to 
the end user and the shipper. If it's a useful pipeline uh, and you have contracts that are, you know, profitable, uh, especially if they're longer term contracts, the value of the pipeline becomes tied to the business performance of the pipeline rather than being tied to the construction cost of the pipeline. So that's where I get to the point where the pipeline has the potential to be worth more if as a business it's doing well. Okay. Okay. Understood. And there, and, and to be fair about this, there are pipelines that lose their usefulness. You know, there are pipelines that end up, you know, sitting not, not used. And, and that's a whole other topic that I think is, is very worthwhile in talking about the risks uh, for KMI and uh, even take or pay contracts and all that. But let me finish on this uh, DCF issue. So when we look at how much cash a company like KMI can afford to dole out to shareholders every year, uh, using distributable cash flow, which is really the amount of money they make on their existing operations, using that number now becomes problematic because they are now self-funding their growth. They cannot pay out 100% of that uh, distributable cash flow. It's wrong to call it distributable because you, you don't distribute all of it the way they used to. So that's why I came up with a term DCF 2.0, which becomes a smaller number than what the uh, midstreams call their regular DCF. And it, and what it is, it, it gets subtracted by the cash that they are investing in their growth projects. So in Kinder Morgan's example, they have about $3.1 billion in uh, growth capex for this the current year. If they maximize the amount that they would borrow toward that uh, based on the credit metrics that are in effect for them, they could fund that $3.1 billion with a billion dollars of internally generated cash. Now, they're not going to actually do that uh, level of, of debt. They're, they're going to actually fund most of it with cash. But in terms of calculating the uh, DCF 2.0, I maximize that out. Um, and so what we end up with is a DCF 2.0 number that says they're going to contribute $1 billion of cash. So that's no longer distributable. I'm going to take the $5 billion that they report is distributable, and I subtract $1 billion from that. And I come up with $4 billion as the real amount they could theoretically distribute. Incidentally, if you use that number to do a... Uh, discounted cash flow analysis, even with a very low growth rate, you can come up with a fair value in the mid-20s for the stock. And, you know, I think this level of undervaluation exists to some extent for the whole industry, even though by many metrics, KMI is more undervalued than uh, the average company in the industry. So I, I want to ask a couple sort of technical questions around how you think about this not to get it's not to get obsessed with the specific right way but i, I like to to explore how you're thinking about it and then also a couple more fundamental questions i think about this approach that it, it, i come to mind when i review it and the first one is what do you do with this number you just said for example it could be an input in a dcf model discounted cash flow model I could imagine you using it to show coverage for the dividend. Are you using it? I, for example, a commenter on our last article said the stock trades for eight to nine times distributable cash flow and I, not using the 2.0 number. And to me, that seemed like a leap because you're not including any of the company's debt and you're still abstracting all this growth capex and all the other things that we've talked about. So to me, that seems like a very... I wouldn't be comfortable using it that way. So first of all, just how are you, once you have this number, is it go going into the DCF model or how else do you use it to inform your understanding of KMI? One way to use it is definitely to do a discounted cash flow calculation. Another way that, that it's, of course, very useful is to get a more specific idea of 
what their dividend coverage is. So it has become common in, in the midstream world to say, I have dividend coverage of, let's say, 1.5 or something. And what they're doing is they're saying my dividend is, I don't know, a dollar. And I have DCF of, you know, two dollars or, you know, a dollar seventy five or whatever. And so my dividend is well covered to your point that those numbers are not considering the cash that is being spent on new projects. It's a meaningless number. You're just you're just blindly guessing that, oh, you know, it's such a big difference between their dividend and what they say they're pulling in from their existing operations that, yeah, they're safe. And while that as a real rough gauge is usable, it's much more useful to know the actual cash they're spending. You know, you want to know what their real coverage is after they pay out the cash. It's like if you owned a business and you were growing that business and you had the right checks for your new endeavors, you're really going to consider how much those expenses are to, to expand. And you're not going to, you're not going to provide a, a dividends to your shareholders in excess of what that is. And, and I think that's where the industry needs to go. I think a lot of analysts, Alarian, uh, Valuentum, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, some, some writers on Seeking Alpha, they want to stick with free cash flow. I think that's too restrictive. What that does is it rewards companies that don't have a lot of growth. You know, they're not spending a lot of growth capex. They're sort of in what I'll call the cash cow mode. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But I think, I think the growth versus cash cow debate is a big one. It's, it's, it's a, kind of a debate between analysts sometimes and the companies themselves. I, I actually have a quote here and, um, you know, I'll, I'll just read it. It's a couple sentences. Yeah, it's great. It was uh, from a conference call very recently. And uh, let's see if you can guess a little bit on this. It was actually the first analyst on the conference call asking, you know, the first question from an analyst on the conference call. And they say, when you started your remarks, you talked about 17% compounded annual growth in the adjusted earnings base of the company. It's important to note that free cash flow per share has gone from significant positive territory to negative territory over those years as well. So while I fully understand and we all fully understand the importance of having long-term investment horizon, the margins of the company are basically stagnant and at best and in many periods, down on a year-over-year -year basis. So if you can give us some of your thoughts on how you think about the moving pieces between balancing capital investments and returns, giving the performance in recent years. So that was the question. The uh, founder and CEO of this company responded with, basically, the perspective of Wall Street is always give me the money. Perspective from inside blank, that's the company name, is what's the best thing we can do for the long term? You care to take a guess, Daniel, on not necessarily the company itself, but the industry that was in? That sounds fairly Bezosian to me. I don't know if... I don't that's know if a Jeff very good guess, because Bezos is a competitor in some ways of this company. This was a conference call with FedEx. But the question and the answer illustrate the tug of war that goes on between analysts and people who want to see free cash flow be strong and companies that think it's necessary to expand. And I think we're seeing that in the midstream space. Uh, Olarian on a regular basis is, you know, talking about how uh, just recently they came out with an article based saying that CapEx, uh, growth CapEx is peaking in the next year or two and should decline going out further. And, and that might be accurate. Here's my thought on this whole tug of war between, you know, lowering CapEx and having higher free cash flow on the one hand 
and growth on the other hand. First of all, as a business, you have to do the right thing within your industry. If you're in an industry that's growing and you decide you're going to be a cash cash cow type of company and keep your capex growth capex down while sending out big checks to your cust- uh, your investors that's not going to work so to some extent the level of investment is not a matter of what I'll call capital discipline or fiscal discipline it's a matter of uh, the industry itself and how much sense it makes to add pipelines if you do it in a responsible manner, which I think a lot of companies are trying to emphasize now, that they're doing it at margins that are stronger than they have been in the past. Uh, many uh, companies are emphasizing their uh, CapEx versus EBITDA as, as a metric to show that, you know, we're getting, let's say, uh, 15% on these uh, projects. But the other side of this is, is that KMI makes a lot of money. They make, from their existing operations, they make $5 billion a year. And how much of that gets invested in growth versus you know, rewarding shareholders doesn't matter to me a whole lot as an investor. You know, when you do a um, dis- discounted cash flow analysis and you, you come up with a value for a company, you've really got two, you know, you got a number of inputs, but you have two competing inputs that, that reflect on this discussion. One is how much are they currently making? And the other is what's your estimate for growth? And those tug at each other. You can make a lot of money, but if you're, the percentage that you're targeting for growth is low, you're going to have a, a, a lower uh, estimated share price. Uh, on the other hand, you might not make a lot of money, and Amazon was kind of an example of that, but you think you're going to have a lot of growth. So those tug at each other, and uh, it seems that the analyst community always pushes on the free cash flow side, understandably, because that's more certain. You know, they're not certain how well these in- investments at FedEx or KMI are going to turn out in terms of the bottom line. So that's my view on it. No matter how you look at KMI, they make a lot of money, and the amount of money they make relative to their share price is very attractive, I think, at, at current levels. And how that money gets spent, as long as it's responsibly invested, I'm perfectly fine with uh, growth capex. It's interesting because I, I would assume that the analysts are reflecting what they hear from their clients as well. And you think of the most, for whatever reason, the example that comes to mind for me is the Apple example with Icon and Einhorn and other major investors advocating for Apple, the biggest company in the world at the time and more or less right there now to, you know, and was still growing quite well. And that's an interesting sort of thing to game out in hindsight, because now their growth is a little bit more stagnant in the question. You know, the questions are, was this inevitable, et cetera. And I I don't think we need to pick that apart, but it's interesting how much investors like cash. I mean, ultimately it's, it's easier, like you said, and it's safer and it's more near term to know that you're getting your money back. I, I want to, I, I want to dwell on this a little bit more, but before I do, the, the other two things that I wanted to ask about DCF 2.0, first is just, you you sort of said you derive it by looking at their debt rating and how much they could max out on debt and then sort of backing out how much they would have to internally fund. And I guess I'm just thinking of other ways if I were to look to look at KMI, like the things I was, I pulled up their 10 cases we're talking, I was thinking about, okay, how much debt have they issued versus how much have they paid back? And in 2018, it was about flat. The two years prior, they actually paid some debt back. So then you can kind of compare that to their debt load, et cetera. And then they also report what they call sustaining capital. And so that's their maintenance capex. And so I guess you could, in some sense, there's probably a way to actually triangulate more or less this 
internally funded growth capex number, isn't there? Or is it, or do you find that that's not really worth the mental exercise it takes to get you there as long as you can roughly earmark how much they might have to fund internally? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a very good point. And I guess if you wanted to really get into the nitty gritty, you could actually calculate two different DCF 2.0s. A company that, and KMI is still a little bit in this situation, has to pay back debt, has to reduce overall debt levels. Which was my um, next question. So that's, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so that company is going to target some of the cash toward debt reduction. Or to think of it another way, they're going to target it towards growth so that their debt ratios look better. You know, think of a person with a with a mortgage that's, you know, too big. Well, it could get fixed by reducing the size of your mortgage, but it could also get fixed by getting a nice big raise at work. So those are the two ways that debt, the, the debt ratios improve. And so as companies add, you know, projects, as these projects go online, the amount of money that they're pulling in increases. And so the amount of debt as a ratio, you know, looks better. Over the last few years, KMI actively was doing both of these things. They were trying to, you know, increase, you know, they were putting projects in service and increase their EBITDA, but they were also selling off things and, uh, you know, paying off some of their debt. So they did improve their debt ratios pretty dramatically. Their uh, debt to EBITDA went from about 5.8 at its peak to, I think it's about 4.6 now. They're targeting 4.5. So they're pretty close to where they want to be with that. But to get back to your question, when a company has to use some of the cash to pay back, back debt, it's kind of in a special mode because their cash isn't used only to reward shareholders or to build projects. Now you have kind of a third thing they use that cash for. And uh, KMI is definitely in that boat still. Uh, I was hoping they would be out of it by now, but they've got a little bit more left. You know, how you think about that really depends on how far off a company is. I mean, a company that's struggling with a a mountain of debt, uh, you know, yeah, I would definitely adjust their distributable cash flow down. Um, A company like KMI now, where it's pretty close to being where they want, um, I'm not sure we have to make a big adjustment. So that's kind of my quick answer on on that. So where does debt go over time, though? Because I think your model by sort of you're acknowledging essentially that part of their CapEx will continually be funded out of debt. So is it just in, in your article to be clear, like you, you did, it's not that this was, you had, a, you explained leverage levels at another company as a comparison and you talked about their target of 4.5, but is that, is that sort of what keeps it honest is to look at that debt to EBITDA ratio or other leverage metrics to make sure that they're not just, continually that the debt is not piling up that they're indeed paying things down or is it already sort of built in by the different things you're doing with the math that you're not going to get in trouble from a increase in the debt load yeah um that's a good question the article i wrote didn't really focus part almost at all on the balance uh balance uh, sheet side of things uh, it was really focused on kind of the cash flow side. Um, but uh, because pipelines and midstream assets, I should say, have exceptionally long life measured in many decades. In fact, there are some that are 50 years old that are you know perfectly fine. Uh, and that's true even more for natural gas pipelines than, than oil, uh, than liquids. Because of that, I think of debt as simply being a ratio. I don't think that the debt ever has to be paid off completely 
unless the pipelines themselves start losing their useful, you know, business purpose. So going back to the mortgage example, as long as a person is working and has a, an income stream, no one would say, you know, when are you going to be finished with that mortgage? You know, people think of mortgages as only needing to end when the income stream ends. People don't always pay, pay off their mortgage unless they're sort of debt averse. Uh, but that's kind of the thinking on this is that as long as the asset base and the income stream supports the level of debt, there's no reason to uh, go below a, a given level of debt. The pipeline business uh, is not a high margin business. And so the only way that you make reasonable returns is to use leverage on your assets. I'm okay with that, even though I personally am fairly debt averse. I'm okay with this business model because the assets themselves has a, have a very long, useful life. You know, there's real estate that's associated with them too. So when you think about their assets, when you think about a pipeline, you think about the pipe itself, but the right of way is a big part of it. Just like a, you know, a piece of real estate in downtown Manhattan has a value because of the location, these pipelines have the, the same type of value. So the shorter answer to your question is, I don't see the need to completely pay off the amount of debt short of, you know, massively rising interest rates, or asset bases that don't support the uh, level of income relative to the debt. Okay. That okay. So that also sets up, I think, maybe maybe the last question, both on this topic and potentially on the whole on the podcast today, because we've been going for a good discussion here. But one of the things Kirk said last week. Or the, one of the thing I took out of his story was essentially a story of the company is he sees them as not going to build out too much, that they're more restrained with how they're viewing the sector in general. And so then you can kind of see, all right, depreciation and amortization will decline over time. CapEx, more importantly, will decline over time. And it sort of resolves your growth versus cash flow question to a degree. He's, he essentially, I took it as they're not too far from being a cash cow and they've already sort of stabilized themselves to reap the benefits of that. And what I'm curious about is, again, this may be a matter of preference. And I know it's for listeners who've gotten this far, maybe it's tedious to keep coming back to the metrics themselves. But I think this was what we were getting at. It seems like with a pipeline company, it's fairly easy to model out what your expected returns are. And then you can put a band around it and say, we got this since we did on the low end and you talked earlier about execution risk and other things. But I guess my question is, because I think what you're saying is also this sort of, you had the example in your article, you used two business restaurant owners, Wendy and Tony, I think, or Tom. And you said, you know, one of them, Wendy's business was essentially much better, but then if she invested a lot in growth capex, it wouldn't look as good on free cash flow. And what occurs to me is that's backwards looking free cash flow. And in theory, you should be able to model out future looking free cash flow. And so I guess my question is why not instead of you're already going a step beyond the company by doing this extra analysis to help better understand it. And so I, it's not necessarily directed at you, but why not just try to model out some of these cash flows more in the future? Why not, you know, we're expecting them to achieve such and such a return on their investment. The payback period, they've talked about payback period over, I forget if it was two years or six years, but, um, they sort of, you get a, you can get an idea of, okay, if they're spending, if their sustaining capex number is correct, then here's what their growth capex number is. And so, I can expect their free cash flow five years from now to be X. And then, I don't know, is that, is that just more work than it's worth? Or what, what keeps, what in this industry leads 
investors, in your view, or it leads you to use something like a DCF number, the distributable cash flow number, more than something where you're actually modeling out the future growth based on the investments they're making? Well, I think that people do, um, not just with KMI, but with all the midstreams, uh, take a look at their CapEx, their growth CapEx plans for the near term and try to model out what that means for future cash flows. And it is a useful exercise. You know, Kinder Morgan has about a $6 billion backlog right now. And so you can say, well, you know, they're going to make, you know, on that $6 billion, they'll, they'll probably make 15% um, as their, you know, annual EBITDA. And you can take about two-thirds of that and say, well, that's going to be their dis- distributable cash flow, which is they, they turn about 62 to 64% of their EBITDA into you know, existing operations cash flow or distributable cash flow. And so you can model that out and say in about two or three years, this is where we see them. And that results in X for their distributable cash flow. And, you know, they could pay a dividend of, let's say, X based on that. So, so yeah, so there is some of that. Uh, what's not clear in the industry is how much growth will remain. And so people don't know how to model that. I remember reading a, um, a Morningstar analysis of Enbridge, and they predicted 2% distributable cash flow going forward after a certain date, which I thought was fairly low. Um, and they did eventually change that to be 3%. Now, I, I can't remember exactly, but I believe the company itself is projecting 5 to 7%. So that's that creates a lot of uncertainty for investors. When you try to do this kind of modeling, are we in this big energy build out and do we need to continue adding midstream assets or are we peaking and can we get into more of a cash cow kind of mode uh, and kind of settle down and enjoy all this money that's flowing in? And, and I don't know the answer to that. Very smart people do projections. It wasn't that long ago that people talked about peak oil and now we're awash in it. So I don't know the answers to these questions, and and I don't make my investment based on a given assumption. Uh, what I go back to is that Kinder Morgan is going to pull in five billion dollars on its existing, you know, investments on its existing assets, and that's a good amount of money relative to the share price. They're Current plans are to invest uh, a couple billion a year in new assets, and they're telling us that they're going to do that at fairly attractive margins, and that's a good business model. And whether or not the stock reacts to that in a positive way, you know, you don't know when the midstream industry ever, you know, or or soon uh, becomes um, more highly valued. But while you're waiting, you're collecting a pretty handsome dividend. So that's kind of where I stand on things. It's easy to wait as we try to see where this industry is going to go in terms of growth. So the if I would paraphrase it, it's sort of better a bird in hand, but also because you are also talked about how you're happy with them spending on growth capex as well. So given their track record and given the the ease with which you can kind of track the results, the sort of mixed strategy is satisfactory to you as a shareholder because there is as you said an adequate dividend but at the same time you can hope for you have some exposure to this growth should it play out without having to do all the modeling and all the assumption making that may have come through the approach I suggested in my question. Is that correct? Yeah. And and when you do the modeling, it looks pretty good. I mean, you know, Kinder Morgan is projected to have a, 
distributable cash flow of $2.20 this year, it's probably reasonable to assume that in a couple of years, they'll be at $2.50, roughly, based on their current slate of projects, their, their, their backlog. They're also slated to pay a dividend next year of $1.25. So at the current price, you're looking at an uh, over 6% yield in a year. And so even if they grow their dividend at 4%, you've got a potentially 10% return using that simple model of dividend yield plus growth rate. It's not a, a bad investment from a simple perspective like that. Okay. Okay. Got it. So that's a really, it, it, it's just, it's a, it's a very, I think, complete approach. I would need more time to sort of think about how I would want to apply it in my investing or whatever else. But I think for the sector, it seems like you've really, obviously know the sector really well. And it seems like, yeah, you've kind of hammered out all the, what it does, what it doesn't do, and then what it means. And so, so yeah, I really, really enjoyed getting a chance to hear it. So what's your perspective on this now? This is the third podcast. How has your perspective changed over time? Yeah, I, I was thinking that in my head as we were <laughs> <laughs> as we were going through this. Um, I I think there is. I think it's fair to say you know we came in relatively green to the podcast, and I understand why people didn't didn't appreciate the initial podcast. Like I, I I get it. We're we're doing the best we can, but part of the model is we come in a little green. And then we speak to people who have been following it closer. Um, I think due to that, we were still a little bit too anchored in the narrative around Kinder Morgan and in the sell-off and in the fact that many people were upset with what happened a few years ago. And then I think what we glommed onto from the recent coverage, and I put this in a comment recently, and we've got some very avid commenter, commenters who've gone back and forth with us. So I really appreciate that. But I put in a comment, something like, you know, there were comments still sort of taking take or pay at face value, still sort of taking the DCF number. And our perspective as editors, or I don't edit as much anymore, but just working inside Seeking Alpha is you just sort of see these communities and these trends build around a certain idea. And then we have seen some go bust. And so that was something that was where our, I think my reaction came from in the first arc was just like, how are we, it seems like we should know better than to follow this again. And in talking in hearing the feedback from readers and in talking with you and in talking with Kirk, like, I think, I don't think we were right to characterize it that way. I mean, there's always going to be people who sort of take management's word for whatever's going on. But I think there is a, I think the story has changed and I don't, I think that's something that I'm appreciating more. I don't know the investment, you know, I, I would, I don't want to speak about for my portfolio, whether or not it would fit in, but I think the, the story, it's clear that there is a change in the story and, that was sort of how I put it in the title of last week's podcast. There is sort of, they got religion a little bit as far as the learning their lesson about the debt and needing to be more controlled than their spending. And, and I think, I think what I don't want to speak for Mike too much since he's not on this podcast as he's out this week, but the, his argument was these are just pipes, right? And so it's hard to get the competitive advantage. And so you're really just talking about pipelines and, whoever gets there first. And I think the two interesting angles beyond the history and that we've learned our lesson that seems to come across is the contracts thing is really fascinating to me as a potential. That's just something you don't, I don't think about as a natural advantage or as an advantage. And so I think that's a really intriguing point. And then also I think Kirk Spano's point, which is a, which is a helpful reminder is that Pipelines are not easy to build. And for, you know, I'm somebody who considers myself an environmentalist. I'm not going to open up each sing singular issue, but the pipelines are not, not a 
natural growth industry just in and of itself in terms of permitting. And, and so that's something where having the network already, I can see how that would be more of an advantage than it would be in a total competitive environment. And so I guess those are the, so the three big takeaways for me are that, yeah, the story has indeed changed. It's not, there may be people out there who are still, I think it's healthy to take what management, and I don't always do this with my own investing, as I've said, but I think it's always healthy to take what management says with a grain of salt and to trust, trust, but verify, or even distrust, but verify just to do your own independent work. And I think both you and Kirk have demonstrated different ways of doing that. But the story appears to have changed and it does appear that there are some in some advantages that Kinder Morgan can rely on that make their business more attractive than it might appear as just a company putting pipes in the ground and a company that has had a leveraged balance sheet and still still has a fairly leveraged balance sheet even though they've improved it. And so yeah, I don't so I don't know. I don't I don't I and I, I to be fair, I don't think that we were ever super bearish on the company per se. I think we were more concerned about what we were seeing as far as that taking of received wisdom on Kinder Morgan. And it's good to in the pushback we've gotten from comments to some degree and then also on these podcasts to hear that there's much more to it than just just that, just that received wisdom. And so yeah, I think that's where I stand or sit right now on the company. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. I mean, I, I think this process, you know, with these three podcasts and, you know, with the commentary from some of the Seeking Alpha users has been uh, very useful. I mean, that, and look, and not to, we're, we're, we're two people who enjoy this market. Mike's, Mike is a CFA. I've, you know, been investing this for a while and, but we're neither of us pretend to be experts. It's just, we have seen things just based on the chair we sit in. We just kind of stuff comes across our desk all the time. And so it's fun to get to spend some time. We both, I made this comment recently. We both have day jobs at Seeking Alpha that take up a lot of our time, but this is a lot of fun for us. And it's a lot of fun to have you on here and get to, I mean, it's, an impressive amount of insight I think you delivered here without, you know, without being showy or anything else, but just it's clear you've spent time with the company. I said you've been commenting on it a while and it comes across that you've really studied this and have a lot of insights. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us and to go walk through that sort of DCF 2.0 and just, just allow us to get a little bit nerdy about the accounting and about the valuation process. I think that's always fun for us. <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it's been very enjoyable daniel all right well yeah so thank you so much dividend streamer this has been great and i hope especially if you cover another stock at seeking alpha i hope we'll get a chance to speak with you again when we have another good topic for you okay great thank you very much all right thanks for listening to beyond the idea we hope you enjoyed these three podcasts on kinder morgan and if you didn't the good news is that we are almost certainly not going to talk about the company next week. If you have a chance to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, or even to just tell a friend about Behind the Idea, we'd be grateful. Thanks for listening. This has been Seeking Out for Production, and it will be next week when we see you on Behind the Idea.